Welcome to Trial Lawyer Talk. I'm Scott Glovsky, and I'm your host for this podcast where we speak with some of the best lawyers in the country. Today, we have a real treat. We have one of the wisest, most thoughtful, and most strategic trial lawyers and trial consultants that I know. Marge Russell is from Michigan. She graduated from the first class of Tri Lawyers College and has been around TLC and teaching ever since. That's more than 25 years of honing, discovering the story, connecting with your clients, and really refining the skills that make us credible, genuine, and authentic. Today, Marge is going to share with us really a methodology for how to take the weakest aspects of your case, the ones that keep you up at night, the ones that you're scared of in voir dire, and turn those into part of our trial story. Marge goes into aspects of discovering the story, of connecting with the client, of going to those places that seem the most dangerous, the most scary, and working through those and integrating those into the heart of our case, and then taking those issues and using them in voir dire. So you're really going to enjoy this episode. There's a lot of richness and a lot of lessons that Marge provides. So enjoy. And don't forget, please subscribe to the podcast. And I would really appreciate it if you could go on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a good rating because I really want other people to know about what we're doing because I think these lessons are good for all of us. Let's get going. very pleased and humbled and honored to be sitting with Marge Russell. And we have a lot of brilliant folks on Trilor Talk. And Marge is absolutely a genius. Marge is a trial consultant who has been a law professor for many years and has trained some of the best lawyers in the United States and is an absolute genius at trial strategy. And thanks for being with us, Marge. Thanks for having me. Marge, can you share with us a story of a case that had a profound impact on you? The one I've been thinking about is a trial that we did recently, within the last several months. And um, it came to mind because I think it really illustrates for people what I do. I get asked a lot, what is it that you really do? And because I work in case development, not just jury selection, 
it's really hard for me to figure out how to answer that question. I always feel on the spot. And this case kind of crystallized for me a way to talk about it in what really, I was able to see what really happens with how I approach things. And the story is a simple case. A 19-year-old uh, guy gets into a car wreck. And what uh, plaintiff's lawyers don't like to hear and defense lawyers like to say, low impact, right? Minor impact. Uh, what does MIST stand Soft for? tissue. Soft tissue. Okay. It actually wasn't really soft tissue. He got broken up worse than that. Both of his wrists were broken. And he had neck and back lower back problems right away. So all of that did show. Ended up having to have surgery on one of his hands. And um, it had taken really a long time to kind of get through stages of recovery. The story of how I get involved in cases most often is that a lawyer will call me and say, I'm really having trouble connecting with this client. Or I feel like this client has some really bad stuff in his either his behavior or in his history. And I don't know how to handle it. I can't quite get the stories out of them. Maybe jurors are going to hate him for it. I don't know how to put this together in what legally is a good case and is a matter of the damages is a good case. And these things about this guy or some little aspect of the story um, make me afraid that the jurors are just going to get fixated on that and not really see where justice is. So um, by the time they took depositions in this case, David had reached a low point, and it was about two years after the wreck. He had already had the surgery on his hand, and he had, wasn't working. He was living at his parents' house with his girlfriend. He was drinking to excess, seriously to excess, and had reached a point of hopelessness. That's the plaintiff that the defense lawyer met. And that's what the plaintiff's lawyer expected the defense to focus on. We've got a kid who got in Iraq and then just decided to go live in mom and dad's basement, not work, wait for a payday. He wants to hit the lottery and make him look like he was lazy and greedy and all those things. And from what is actually in the deposition record, he looks like that. He really does. So when the lawyer called me, he just said, I don't know what to do because I love this guy and he's amazing, but he makes himself look bad. I can't get him to talk about himself in a way where he doesn't validate the picture that the, I know the defense lawyers want to paint. So it's not just what's going to happen in cross-examination. It's what's going to happen even during direct exam. The jurors aren't going to like him. I'm afraid they're going to reject him for the things that have happened. And I don't know what to do because he's really badly hurt 
and there's serious damages and he needs treatments and surgery. They found out that his discs in his lower back were actually torn and it hadn't been diagnosed properly. Or it just had, they hadn't gotten to that stage of things. There really, there wasn't any error by the doctors. And um, so we have to take care of him. And we knew that on liability, even though they still hadn't admitted it, that that really was an easy case. Their driver was coming out of a parking lot, trying to cross six lanes of traffic to continue. It was a T road to continue on that road. And he, he could see David coming and just went anyway. And David had no way of avoiding hitting him. So the fault was clear. We weren't worried at all about that part of it. It was really the way we felt jurors would reject them, or at least the lawyer did, and said, please come help. And what I've discovered is this. It's is kind of the essence of where uh, I think my best help is in the before trial part, is connecting with people and helping them feel comfortable fully being themselves, especially about the things that people want to attack them for. And when they can get to a place where instead of wanting to deny um, being a forceful woman, for example, they can say, yeah, I, I am the kind of person that doesn't want you ordering me around unless you're my boss. You know, I don't see anything wrong with that. Instead of going, well, I don't know what you mean, or you know, answering back or trying to deny it, if they can relax into it, to it and own it as part of themselves or a piece of behavior, own it as part of themselves, that then when they believe that, when they start realizing they don't have to act like someone else, they can actually say yes to everything that's true about them without having to explain it away, without trying to explain it away or defend against it. And the lawyer sees it. Then the lawyer relaxes into the idea that we can tell the story that way and it won't backfire on us. And sometimes that's the harder project. That what's been happening is, for instance, in this case, the lawyer's afraid of how they're going to throw dirt at him because there is some truth in it. There's, it's true that he was living in his parents' house and not working and drinking to excess, and his girlfriend was living there too, and he didn't get surgery or continue on with physical therapy. It all sounds and looks ugly, and it's all true. And so the lawyer wants to find a way to kind of make it not true or avoid having to talk about it. And my philosophy is, no, the essence of the story must be in there somewhere. What looks like the worst place, if you embrace it and try to say, yes, that is true, and it's important to know, because when we know that, then we're going to understand some of the why then we can find where the truth is. And so I work with the client or the witness to get them to where they can say, yep, that's true. Yes, I was doing that. Yes, that did happen. 
I'm okay with it, here's, or maybe I'm ashamed of it now looking back. And here's what's different today. So how did you do that in this case? So with David, um, first we just met together and actually got together with the lawyer and David and the woman who's now his wife and was his girlfriend then. Um, and we just had a meal together and just talked about things, got to know each other, didn't really get into anything related to the case, learned about his family a little bit. And then when we sat down, that was dinner when I had come into town. When we sat down to work the next day, um, the first thing that I tell people when, when we're working this way is I'm there to, to really help them by being the voice of our enemies and not just opposing counsel or the defendant, but also the people who could potentially be jurors and would hate us. And it doesn't mean that I believe these things, and still they have to be said out loud. And we have to find out how you respond and react when these things are brought up, and we have to find the real truth of them so we can tell a true story and so that you can be comfortable being honest in court. It's not going to be pleasant. I may get you really angry. I've had people storm out of the room. I've had people refuse to continue working, have to be lured back the next day. And I tell them, it's okay if at the end you don't like me very much because it's, it's for you and your lawyers so that you can get justice. I'm on the team, but I don't have to be your friend. I think we will be friends at the end. I think we're going to be really happy with how this ends. But it doesn't have to go that way. Okay, I'm going to poke you with some sharp sticks. And we will find how to get justice through doing that. And so I began going through the list of things that the lawyer had given me that were the danger points, the things that the defense was going to poke at and say, well, let's talk about this. Not working about the living at your parents, about the drinking. And what we learned in the end was that for David, this really had been the low point in, and the midpoint in what was now a four-year recovery period since the crash. And that was when the defense lawyers had met him. So by going all the way back in time to right after the crash, and finding out how he felt then first. What I learned was he really was someone who had risen to the occasion at the beginning. A week after the crash, he got a new job. And he got promoted three times at that job. The problem was it was at the gym where he used to work out before he got hurt. He ended up being the manager of the place. And it was also the thing that sent him into the bottle. Because every day, and this is that part, this is the part that I'm not sure I can, I'm always very good at describing how we get there. But somehow by just talking about things like, what's it like on an ordinary day at work? Um, put yourself 
behind that front desk where you stand for most of your shift, watching what's going on in the gym, keeping track of your employees, greeting people when they come in. What are you thinking about? Turn around and look into the gym and what do you see in there? How do you feel when you look at that? And what we discovered was that he was torturing himself. He had been this guy before the crash who worked out all the time, who prided himself on his physical fitness. He was going to school. Um, it was a big part of his life. I mean, the reason they hired him at that gym was he had lived there. And it was a slap in the face every day. I can't do that anymore. I might not ever be able to do that again. Look at my body. My muscles are going away. I've started to get fat. My hand doesn't work well. I'll never be able to lift again. Because they did the surgery on my hand. And it still doesn't work. And that was where he lost hope and started drinking and he quit the job technically and he would say it that way I technically quit but they would have fired me I deserved it I was coming drunk on the job I quit school my girlfriend was pissed off at me I'm laying in my bed in my parents house drinking all day long and that was my lowest point and as we continued on, we'd take just points in time on the calendar and say, well, let's go forward to here. What's the next thing that happens? Well, the next thing that happened is my girlfriend put her foot down. <laughs> and she said, do you want me to stay with you? If you do, you got to stop this stuff. you got to quit drinking. And you have to get serious about trying to get well. This isn't okay. And I did. Because what happened was, for some reason, and right now I need to pause for a second and think, because I don't think it was his girlfriend that brought this to him. I think it might have been his dad. Yes. Um... <clears throat> His dad has always, had always been kind of a disapproving guy. Um, one of the funny jokes we had, I'm going to digress here for a minute, one of the funny jokes we had among the trial team and with, the, with David and his wife was uh, one of the things the defense lawyers liked to beat on was that he wouldn't even help by mowing the grass when he was at his parents' house. And he's like, if I ever tried to touch my father's lawnmower, he'd throw me out of the house. He's serious, obsessive, compulsive. He is a military guy, and he would not let anybody ever do that. Oh, no. You know, I did help with things. I did this for you. you know, and he went on to other stuff, but it was one of our jokes <laughs> about, <laughs> about our lazy ass. Uh, but what happened was his drinking got so bad, he landed himself in the hospital. He and his girlfriend had gone to the grocery store, and he was super depressed. And she will tell us now, I was enabling him. I would take him if he wanted to go buy something to drink. And he bought 
what, what do they call a handle? So it's one of those big bottles and drank the whole thing before they got home and ended up being hospitalized from alcohol poisoning. When he came home, the story we learned, and see, some of this just gets complicated because we have to follow the little rabbit trails. The story we learned was that when he came back to his parents' house from the hospital, he walked in the door, and his mom and his dad were standing there right inside the doorway. And I asked him, so, you know, what did they do? What did they say? Show us what they did and said. And I was fully expecting, having heard the stories about his dad and how rigid he was and he would yell and not let you use his lawnmower, I was expecting that he was going to get a lecture, that this was going to be, you need to hear this lesson, buddy, and straighten your life out, and that it was going to be a sermon. Instead, it's going to make me cry thinking about it. And it made David cry when I asked the question. He just started crying. And I went, can you tell us? He said, my mom didn't move. And my dad rushed toward me and threw his arms around me and started crying and said, I'm so glad you're safe. I love you. He had never done that before. And then David said, in that moment, I realized the effect my behavior was having on everyone else. And I saw my mom suffering. And I realized how much my dad loved me and cared about me and wanted me to get better. I quit drinking. I went back to physical therapy. I got a job and I'm registered for school next semester. And so what started as a, how do we deal with a guy who just has not taken care of himself and the defense has a right to point their finger at some of how he's behaved during these four years, turned into a story of redemption, of how, how much more devastated, how much more suffering came to him from this crash. I mean, his suffering expanded from us being able to say yes to the story, right? Because your pain is your bodily pain. Your pain is your bodily pain. Your suffering is what's been taken from you. You know, it's emotional. And in that period when he lost his sense of self, that was what was taken from him. He suffered in that job every day because he wasn't the same David anymore. And when we could tell the story as part of the suffering that was inflicted by the crash, and what did he do with it? when he realized his effect on other people, it became a story of redemption. There was no way the defense could ever break that story. You know? And that led us, well, first of all, one of the amazing things, and this is part of what I love about 
what I do and how I find my ways to connect with people is the lawyer never heard the story about his dad hugging and kissing him and crying. He had never heard it before. And of course, when he heard it, it knew he knew it was going to be a key. It was also the key that opened David up to being able to sit back and relax and say, yeah, I drank really, really bad for a while. And he came out of it because he became unselfish. And so then you see it allowed us in the trial to not only have David not be a bad, irresponsible, horrible person, it allowed us to expand damages. So if you're in trial for that, we need to worry about it. And it also gave him a different kind of credibility because he was a generous person, not a greedy person. And it took away the ability of the defense to call him a greedy person, to call him a lazy person, to call him someone who was just waiting for the jurors to pay him. And all of that came from saying, yes, I quit the world for about nine months. And I'm ashamed of it. And it was horrible. And my now wife almost left me over it. And when he could do that, the whole world opened up for us. And then we knew what to do with his wife and what to ask her about and what stories she could tell from the stand about when she reached a point of despair and do I stand by him or do I leave when she was still his girlfriend, you know? And when you meet her and see what a wonderful person she is, then you start saying to yourself, if she's that quality woman stands by him, there's got to be something good about him. And jurors saw all of it and went beyond what the lawyer asked them for in their verdict. So that's the story of David. And um, the piece for me about my work that it really crystallized was that cycle of helping the client or the witness to be comfortable with themselves, helping them to be able to say yes to everything that's true. And then that somehow opens up the story into the thing that will save us. And I've learned that over and over and over again. The place, Josh Carton, one of our great teachers, uses a quote about that. And it's, I think, the place that seems most dangerous is exactly where safety lies. And I wish, I think Barbara Cook is the author. I can remember it now. Um, I use that as a touchstone a lot. Go toward that danger, because if we say yes to the true part of it, we'll find a way out of that darkness, and that it really somehow holds the key. And it can make friends of the people who are most likely to be our worst enemies in the courtroom. You know? And that's pretty darn cool. <laughs> The ones who even might see, yeah, liability's fine, but I'm going to drive your damages down because I don't like him very much. That person can become a friend when we find that honesty. 
And somehow, and this is the piece that I hadn't realized before, but I saw vividly in this case, the lawyer really was the one who had to be convinced that when we went toward that truth, it would be okay and it wouldn't backfire on us and they wouldn't end up with more ammunition. And once he saw David transform, then he could feel confident going into the courtroom and saying yes to all of those things and looking the jurors in the eyes and not being worried about it. It's kind of being able to be in the position with the defense of going, thank you, sir, may I have another? And wanting them to come out with all that stuff. Sometimes what happens, the defense starts to crumble. They come out with that bat in their hand and they start trying to whack you with it and they start see that it's going the other way. They start giving up pieces of their case because they've gotten the backfire. And, uh, you know, every way it goes, it weakens their side and it strengthens ours and it gives us the way to find the bonds with the jurors. You know, he has a loyal girlfriend and wife. He's generous because he sees he's hurting his parents and he wants to do something selfless to ease their pain. Those are... Um, you know, those are the things that when the jurors find them, make them love the person who needs help and makes them step forward to do it. So it seems that you're integrating the, def- the heart of the defense case into your trial story and making it part of the story and, and taking the power out of it. Yeah, that is what it is. I think lawyers get um, oriented to, and some of this is law schools train us poorly for this. They get oriented to either trying to put lipstick on a pig, if you will, right? make it look pretty if we can, or finding a way to keep it out of the case. And sometimes you can keep some things out. Um, that's fine. What I started realizing over the years was that the problem is, the reason we're afraid of it is because there's some truth in there somewhere. There's some truth in there somewhere. There may be a whole bunch of it that's not. There may be a whole bunch of it that comes from bias or prejudice or bigotry, and that the defense wants to play on those things. But there's some truth. They're, they're seizing on a fact before they seize on that. And then they want to attach the two things together, right? So that's what we really fear, is that they will be able to say, see, here's the record. He skipped four medical appointments. We know that fear. You and I share that one about a case, right? And that's what makes the lawyers sort of close into lawyer mode about it. Fear. Fear and an orientation from their training to either try to keep it out or to try and make it prettier. And what I've learned from trial lawyers college training and psychodrama training is that if you lean toward it and say yes to the truth and let me learn more about that truth and where it comes from and why and how it happened, that I am going to find in there the crack that lets the light in where we can not not only not run from it, but cling to it. And when you find that, it takes all the power out of the other side. 
takes all the power away. And then when we turn to jury selection, we go back to validating the defense premise. They're going to tell you. Two years after this crash happened, he's living in his parents' basement. He's not working. He's drinking to excess. His girlfriend's thinking about leaving him. Doesn't it seem like he's just waiting for somebody to give him a payday? And through that discussion, we find the jurors who are firmly fixed in the belief that anybody who sues after a car crash, anybody who's not working at any point in time after a car crash is lazy and just wants somebody to, you know, give them a pay for their living. Give them a big bonus. We, those are our enemies who probably can't be brought around, even with a great story. And those are the ones that we're going to exclude from the tribe. And everyone else is going to have an interesting conversation about what happens to people when they're badly hurt and who gets to say how you rise to the occasion, who gets to say how quickly you need to rise to the occasion, who gets to say how fast you rehabilitate yourself, who gets to say when you should be saying yes to your surgery. Because we had a defense lawyer who wanted to point the finger at David and say, he should have already gotten surgery, and he wants to sit here and pile on with you guys because he's let him get himself get worse. He wanted to point at him and say, he's a young man. He was young and strong. He should have risen to the occasion. He should have done better. Well, if you stop and think about it, ordinary people know a whole lot about being told you shouldn't be grieving anymore. You know, by other people, when are you going to get over this? When are you going to stop being so sad that your husband died? When are you going to be through with all of that laying around in your chair because you're hurt? You haven't gotten out of your depression quick enough? People know lots of stories about that kind of judgment. And we were pretty sure that that judgment wasn't going to sit well with most people. That some would really feel that way. Get up off your butt. Get yourself some treatment. Be serious about it and get to work or school or both. And they weren't going to have any room for ups and downs in that process. And so we wanted to find the people who had either been told that they didn't, they didn't rise up to fight their cancer well enough or, you know, they should have gotten a surgery sooner than they did, things like that. Um, or who felt bad themselves for having said to somebody, you shouldn't still be grieving. Because we knew in the end that they would be able to see his journey and how he did in his own time find the way home. Wow. What a story. The insight that you've provided is, is spectacular because our colleagues out there are scared of the weaknesses in their case and, and it caused them anxiety, caused them to lose sleep, it causes them not to be present in the courtroom. 
and you found a magical way to empower them, to find the real story, and to take the anxiety and fear, to a large extent, out of their case. And in fact, take them out of their lawyer heads and put them in a story as well. It was, I don't like to use the word magical because I don't think there's magic to it. It's about tuning into people and opening your heart and being able to reverse roles with them and imagine how they might feel. And seeing David on the witness stand and how amazing he was when he testified and how relaxed and his best self with his smile on. It was hard to get him to smile even when he was in a good mood. He's not a smiley guy. But he could get his smile on and that he could relax around his eyes and his jaw and not be all tensed up. That reward mattered more to me really than the verdict did in the end. It was seeing him feeling so comfortable with himself and so good about the journey and not feeling ashamed anymore that part of it had been really hard. And um, there was a moment during cross-examination when the defense attorney was being pretty darn hard on him and he just sat back in his chair and he turned toward the jurors and he paused for a long moment and he said, you know, I've thought about that a lot. And you're probably right. And he didn't say anything more. The defense attorney stopped that line of questioning. That's my rewards. When I see that healing, when I see that confidence, when I know that the lawyer has been able to take what we've discovered and make, mag make magic with it there, that the jurors are lighting up with recognition. They know what that's about. They understand that kind of struggle and that he did become a hero in his own life. And that for the, is the bottom line for me. I want to know how has the person we're helping become a hero in their own life and how can we show that story? That's where we go. Simply brilliant. Marge, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. And there's so much insight that I know we're going to have lots of folks reaching out to me to have you come back. So will you come back another time? I will. Thank you so much. Thanks. joining us today for Trial Lawyer Talk. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you could give us a good review on iTunes, and I'd love to get your feedback. You can reach me at www.scottglovsky.com. That's S-C-O-T-T-G-L-O-V-S-K-Y.com. And I'd love to hear your feedback. You can also check out the book that I published called Fighting Health Insurance Denials, A Primer for Lawyers. That's on Amazon. Uh, I put the book together based on 20 years of suing health insurance companies for denying medical care to people, and it provides a general outline of how to fight health insurance denials. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.